This morning we're going to be uh, studying the book of Romans, and specifically uh, in chapter 1. And I'm going to be focusing uh, on 18 through 23, uh, those verses, but to get a sense of the context uh, and kind of where this chapter is going, I'm going to be reading uh, verses 16 through 25. So if you are willing uh, and able, would you please stand with me as I read from God's word this morning? Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever been on the receiving end of a really rotten deal? If you have older siblings, it's almost certain the case that you have. Uh, Maybe you traded five of your most beloved Pokemon cards for that super rare card that turned out to be not so rare after all. Or perhaps you traded chores. Uh, You decided that you would do the dishes tonight in exchange for your siblings doing the laundry, but you forgot that your parents are hosting a dinner party with dozens of their closest friends. Yikes. No good. Ron Wayne uh, is an American businessman and engineer uh, who was involved uh, in the really early days of Apple. So he was involved in helping get the documentation uh, set up to uh, make this company official. Uh, But he had had some previously negative experiences with starting his own business. So he was really risk-averse. And so he saw the way that Steve Jobs was talking about spending their initial investment, and he decided to bail. So he took his 10% stake in the company, uh, and after just a few months at Apple, he sold it for $800. (laughs) Today, uh, a 10% stake in Apple is worth about $120 billion dollars. 
Now, to be fair uh, to Wayne, he didn't have all the facts, right? He didn't know that Apple was going to be this explosively huge company, that that risk uh, that did exist, it was going to pay off. So maybe we can forgive him for making such a bad deal. But our passage this morning in the book of Romans says that everyone, you, me, your mom, your dad, they've made a far worse deal and that we knew exactly what we were giving up. We can think that we wouldn't have missed out on that deal with Apple, the chance to be a billionaire, but the evidence is clear that we made a worse miscalculation, that we've all missed out on fellowship with the immortal God to choose our own path of self-destructive sin. Now, by way of context, uh, as many of you uh, probably already know, Romans is a pretty marvelous book. And I mean that in the literal sense. It's full of marvels. It has some of the richest vocabulary that we have in the Bible for grace, the gospel, what God has accomplished on the cross through Christ to bring us into relationship with himself. We've heard uh, some of this even this morning from Andrew. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are powerhouse verses. Romans is also the most extensive writing in the New Testament about the inner workings of salvation. It seeks to answer this question. How does one become righteous before God? How does one become right with God? And Paul's answer is a simple one, despite the complexity. Paul says that no one is righteous on their own, not a single person, and that we are only made righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ. Martin Luther uh, also loved this book. Uh, He said that this epistle, Romans, is really the chief part of the New Testament, and it's truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. And so it's okay if you haven't yet memorized Romans. You can start with a chunk uh, that we're, we're studying this morning. Uh, and, but with such glowing reviews, uh, I'll admit that it's a little daunting to teach from this book. Uh, but it's, it's a book that's meant a lot to me personally, and I pray that it'll be instructive for us this morning. I actually wanted to preach a little later in chapter 1 uh, to talk about uh, what this chapter has to say about homosexuality. Uh, but in studying and preparing, I realized that we need a, a greater foundation, uh, and so we uh, are starting a little bit earlier in the chapter, and then maybe one day uh, we'll get to that second half of this chapter. But Paul's purpose in the book of Romans is to encourage the church in Rome to be transformed by the gospel, that they would be united, that they would be led by the Spirit, and that they would be missional, ultimately. 
See, Paul is convinced that a church that knows the gospel, that lives and breathes the gospel, is going to be united despite racial, socioeconomic differences. A church like that is going to be led by the Spirit in the things that they do. They're going to see the fruit of God's Spirit manifest in their lives. And a church like that is going to be evangelistic. It's going to be eager, for instance, to partner with Paul uh, in his missionary journeys, as he talks about at the end of this book. And so that's why Paul devotes so much ink, over 16 chapters, to explain the gospel in depth. It is the power of God for salvation. And so Paul spends the first three chapters of this book to talk about sin, our disobedience to God, our unrighteousness, and it culminates in this famous passage in Romans 3, in which Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then he goes on to explain how we are made right with God, or justified. And it's that we're justified only by God's good pleasure or grace. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as the Reformers later uh, summarized it. But it's important for us to realize that his first stop Uh, in this explanation of the gospel, is all about sin, disobedience, unrighteousness, wrath. Really heavy, sobering things, and things that we don't often love to really sit in for extended periods of time. Uh, And you might even be thinking right now, wow, this church talks a lot about sin. I mean, we just finished the book of Revelation, Not too long ago, we're gearing up for Exodus uh, in a little bit. But I would like you to notice something in Paul's motivation that I hope uh, is true in our church's motivation to speak on these things as well. Paul is motivated to teach the gospel, including some searing expositions of our sin because of love. I want you, uh, if you haven't already, to open up your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 1 and look at, with me at just a few verses that happened before this, okay, in the long preamble, in the long introduction uh, that Paul uh, has written to this church in Rome. Notice what he says in verse 11. For I long to see you. Or in verse 13. I have often intended to come to you. Or 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. This is a man who loves this church. He desires to be with them. He cares for them. And it's out of this care, and not in spite of it, that Paul talks as severely and extensively as he does about sin. You see, when we understand the severity of our situation before God, we come to savor the gospel all the more. As John Piper puts it, he doesn't mention the gospel for the sake of sin. He deals with sin for the sake of the gospel. Understanding sin is the foundation that upholds the preciousness of the gospel, not vice versa. And so in this spirit, 
let's dive into our passage this morning. And from verses 18 through 23, I want us to see three actions that we take when we sin. Three actions that we take. In verses 18 through 20, in our sin, Romans says that we suppress the truth. In verse 21, in our sin, we withhold worship and gratitude. And lastly, in the final two verses, when we sin, we exchange the godly for the gaudy. So let's start with uh, number one. In our sin, we suppress the truth in verses 18 through 20. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now you'll notice the first word of verse 18 is for. Uh, It's a very simple word, but in the Bible, prepositions like this are really important to understanding the flow of the text, the the flow of Paul's argument, because they're linking two or more phrases uh, together, and they can help us understand how they relate to one another. So this preposition, the beginning of 18, tells us that to understand it, we have to look back to 16 and 17, which is why we read it earlier today. So what is this for doing? How do we connect the wrath of God that is being revealed against sin to what has come before? And I want to point your uh, attention to verse 17 because you'll notice a parallel. Just as God's wrath is being revealed from heaven, you'll notice similar language in 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now 16 and 17 really encapsulate the main idea of this entire book of Romans. They're kind of like Paul's thesis statement as he prepares to dive in. In 17, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith for faith. It is originated in faith. It is for the purpose of faith. God's righteousness only exists in us through faith. It comes from nothing else than faith. So the gospel, when properly understood and proclaimed, it makes much of God's saving work, makes much of God's righteousness. It magnifies God's greatness. That's what we're seeing in 17. Somehow, in some related way, God's wrath against unrighteousness of men accomplishes something similar. Verse 17 says the gospel beautifully shows that God is generous in mercy and satisfies his perfect justice in Christ, in the cross. But God's wrath, his righteous anger against our unrighteousness also amplifies his righteousness. I was trying to think of a good illustration of what exactly uh, Paul is saying, and uh, this is not a good one, so I apologize in advance, but hopefully 
it gives you just a, a, a taste of maybe what Paul is saying. Imagine you're trying to buy something for $1,000. Its value is $1,000. Wow, it's got great value. But in order to buy that thing, you already have to pay off a $1,000 debt. So really, that thing is more valuable to you. It's $2,000, essentially, right? So just as the beauty of the gospel makes God's righteousness great, our sin, God's wrath against our unrighteousness, makes God's righteousness even greater, right? It also reveals to us God's righteousness. Four. Okay, we haven't gotten very far, but let's keep going. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul says that unrighteous men suppress the truth. Now before um, the women give a really hearty amen, uh, this is unfortunately men as in mankind. All people, everywhere, for all time, in all places. As one commentator put it, this is a universal accusation against all men without exception. And so what Paul is laying out here in the rest of the chapter is not about one specific group or period of time, but he's kind of speaking in this grander way, diagnosing the heart of mankind in the way that we sin. But have we really suppressed the truth? Do we really have truth that we then bury down deep somewhere? In order for that charge to really stick, that accusation, Paul needs to show us that we have had access to the truth. He's not claiming that we were ignorant of God, and that's uh, how we sinned. He's saying that in some way, we did know God. We had access to the truth, and we suppressed that truth. We actively suppressed the truth about God. And so what Paul points to is truth expressed about God, revealed about God in nature. In verse 19, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. He says that we've actively suppressed the truth about God because we've seen God's revelation in nature. For what can be known about God? This is a kind of a weird phrase. It's a little tricky to translate. What does it mean, what can be known about God? It can't mean everything that is possible to know about God in his infinity, right? You and I have limited minds. We can't really ever uh, fully grasp who God is. This is probably more similar to what, you know, to essentially the fact that God can be known. So the fact that God can be known is clear to mankind. That is what Paul is claiming here. And he uses this ironic claim, God's invisible attributes, these things that we cannot see about God or perceive with our eyes, 
He says that we can see them. He says that we can observe them. He says not only that, they're not dimly or faintly observable. These are clearly perceived. So I want you to think with me a little bit about nature. Think a little bit about these attributes uh, that Paul is saying that we can clearly observe in nature. He points to two uh, invisible attributes. Primarily, God's eternal power and his divine nature. God's eternal power. Now, you and I live in cities. We are very urban people. But hopefully, in your lifetime, you've had the chance to get out into nature uh, and really uh, observe and take in what's going on. God's eternality. We can look at the stars, at the galaxies and the heavens above us, and of the hundreds of stars we see, the closest one to us is 25 trillion miles away, 4.3 light years besides the sun. So it takes light four years to reach us. That's the closest star besides the sun. We can't think in those timelines. That's eternality, right? God's power. Uh, I grew up in Texas where in the summer we have really intense thunderstorms. Uh, I'm talking softball-sized hail, sometimes tornadoes, buckets and buckets of rain. These are things that remind you that you are weak, that you are feeble, right? These are storms that rip roofs off of homes, that tear down mighty trees. That's power. God's divinity is seen in nature. We can see in the things that we study, uh, precision and order, from biochemical pathways chugging along, hundreds of reactions per second to ensure that you stay alive, uh, to the migration of animals thousands and thousands of miles every single year, to the hurtling of planets and galaxies through the cosmos at hundreds of thousands of miles per hour. In created nature, we see God's divine nature. And so Romans, and Paul, he presents the created world as enough evidence for you to know that there is a God to be worshipped. And to tell you the truth, we do, kind of. We don't necessarily call it God, but we do assign these things as worthy of worship. We might call them Mother Nature. We might call them science. I'm going to read you this quote from Mikhail Gorbachev, former premier in the USSR. He said, I believe in the cosmos. All of us are linked to the cosmos. So nature is my God. To me, nature is sacred. Trees are my temples and forests are my cathedrals, being at one with nature. And if you want some Americans uh, to, to hear sim something similar, John Muir said, Into the forest I go to lose my mind and find my soul. Wow. If you can't be in awe of Mother Nature, there's something wrong with you. 
Alex Trebek. <laughs> now, please don't get me wrong. I'm, I, I promise you, I'm not against science. I, I love science. I'm professionally a scientist. But what I'm saying here is these men, they've missed something. Right? There's a series of dominoes in creation from the majesty and wonder of the things that we see that is supposed to lead us to understand that God exists. And one of those, or multiple of those dominoes is missing. They're tapping into something that we all feel, that there's something almost spiritual about being in nature. And the Bible says, yes, because God is revealing his character to you through creation. They're close, but they fail to make that connection ultimately back to God. Taken together, in sin, mankind suppresses the truth that you and I know. Namely, that there is a God who is infinite and powerful. Because of the testimony all around us in creation. And because of this, Paul has made it the case that we are without excuse when we do not seek out God with all that we have. In our sin, we suppress the truth. Now, just as a quick aside before we move on uh, to our next point, you may be wondering to yourself, is natural revelation enough? Is it sufficient to know God? And by virtue of what the rest of the Bible says, what the rest of Romans says, in fact, we know that this cannot mean that all of God's revealed truth can be found in nature. No one walking along a beautiful Hawaiian beach is deducing the names of Jesus' disciples. The fruit of the Spirit is not plain to us from looking uh, at a half dome in Yosemite. It's not sufficient to know all of God's revelation. In fact, in Romans 10, later on in this book, Paul says that it's necessary for us to preach the gospel so that people will believe in Christ. God has revealed that he exists through nature, but he has also revealed the details and inner workings of salvation through his word. In our sin, one of the first things that you and I do is we suppress the truth. And in our sin, we also withhold worship and gratitude towards God. Verse 21 continues, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So what are the downstream effects of suppressing the truth about God? Of all the consequences of this devastating truth suppression, what does this passage say are the results? One, that we did not honor God. And two, that we did not give thanks to him. We didn't honor him. We didn't worship him. We didn't acknowledge him for who he is. We ascribed the glory that is rightly his 
to other things like Mother Nature or science or chance or to our own ingenuity, our own wisdom. Instead of falling down on our faces before God, saying, holy, 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 we look in a mirror and say, oh me, oh me, oh me. We didn't honor God. We also didn't give thanks to him. Gratitude in our lives flows out of an indebtedness to God. Those who are humble and recognize where good things in their lives come from are grateful for them. They're generous with gratitude. Now, I don't want to say that these are the only metric uh, of a life that is uh, touched by God, but I think it's a healthy diagnostic for us. Romans says that those who don't know God are chiefly guilty of not honoring him and not giving thanks to him. Gratitude towards God is an indicator in our lives that we truly know God. And the lack of it is an indicator of an atheistic life. So ask yourself this morning, does my life reflect the reality that I know God? Am I often drawn to worship? Do I sing out on a Sunday morning, even though I'm tone deaf? Am I often expressing gratitude and thanks to the Lord? Romans 1 says those are indicators, if you're not doing those things, that you are not living in submission to God. But the spiral continues. He says that we became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. His word futile is like vain or emptiness. If you're familiar with Ecclesiastes, this is the same word that would have been used uh, in the Greek for that. There's an emptiness in our thinking. There's a uselessness in the way that we think. And for us as a congregation, it's very accomplished, well-educated. I want us to notice that Romans is saying our intellect, our way of thinking, is not immune from our ego, and it's not immune from sin. I think sometimes we think of our emotions as being a primarily spiritual thing, but logic, that we can rely on. Math will never let us down. But Paul is saying that by suppressing the truth, we are led to a place where we cannot trust our intellect to be telling us what reality is or is not anymore. Our hearts are darkened even further to a point that we are more resistant to the truth, more stubborn, more alienated from the life of God. It's a problem that festers and develops like a cancer growing unchecked. So let me take this moment to remind you not to tolerate sin in your life. This has just gone from bad to worse. We've suppressed sin. We have withheld thankfulness, gratitude from God. We've become futile, useless, 
in our thinking, our hearts are darkened. This is a positive feedback loop. It just keeps getting worse. Do not tolerate sin in your life. It has a way of turning your thinking into useless drivel and your heart into a stone. In our sin, we suppress the truth. We withhold worship and gratitude. Lastly, in our sin, we exchange the godly for the gaudy. Read with me in verses 22 and 23. It keeps getting worse. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, we may talk big game. We may claim to be wise. But the sad reality is that in our sin, we are fools Now, foolishness in the Bible, before you think, maybe I'm not a fool, (laughs) foolishness in the Bible doesn't typically mean stupidity or lack of intelligence. You can be an incredibly smart fool. From the biblical perspective, studying more doesn't make you less of a fool. No amount of SAT prep or coding interview prep is going to make you wise. Wisdom comes from a right thinking about God and his commandments. Foolishness comes from a rejection of the ways of God. So yes, smart people can be utter fools when it comes to God. 1 Corinthians 1 puts it this way, For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Those who claim to be wise, who are in fact wise of the things of this world, savvy, well-adjusted, well-educated, are prone to foolishness in the things of God. Paul says that Paul then moves on to say that we have exchanged the glory of God for images. And this is the first of three exchanges that Paul talks about in this chapter, pattern of what is the exchange and then what does God do in response to give us up to these exchanges. So look at this exchange with me. Draw these contrasts. The glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. God's glory is radiant, dynamic, imperishable, highlights his holiness, whereas images are flat, static, corruptible, highlighting ordinary nature. It's as if you're at the Grand Canyon, and if you're afraid of heights, you're stepping you know, a little bit back from the edge, but you're at the Grand Canyon. There are hundreds of feet down, miles and miles of just hole in the ground. But instead of taking all that in, you have a blurry postcard of the Grand Canyon in your hand. And that's what you're looking at. You're looking at that. You're studying that. 
The Grand Canyon is right there. You've exchanged something amazing for something mediocre. And I don't think this is just about animals and uh, statues and golden calves and stuff like that. It takes in more subtle ways for us in the modern age. But this is a fundamental exchange that we perform in our sin. So Romans 1 teaches that we are all unrighteous. None of us can be made right with God on our own abilities. In our sin, we suppress the truth that there even is a God, despite a creation that we are a part of that is shouting his existence day in and day out. In our sin, we withhold the worship and gratitude that rightly belongs to God. And in our sin, we exchange the glory of the God for things that are lesser. So if you're here this morning and you're just visiting or you're looking to commit to a church in the area, I realize RBF may not be where you land, but I do ask, however, that you do find and commit to a church that magnifies God's righteousness in the gospel by dealing seriously with sin. A gospel that doesn't grapple with the primary fundamental problem that we have in our sin does not give God enough credit. And if you do not follow Christ, whether because you've never heard the gospel of Jesus before or you've been sidetracked by other things, let me say to you as a friend that God is glorious. He is just. He does all things well. He is righteous. But you and I are not We are unrighteous, and we have no hope to know God in a deep and intimate way as long as we are separated from him because of our sin. But while we take these actions in our sin, Christ has taken other actions to combat them. So while we suppress the truth about God, Christ opens our eyes and says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And while we withhold worship and gratitude, Christ modeled a life of genuine affection for God and draws out of our hearts thanksgiving and praise. And while we exchange the glory of God for a cheap knockoff, He exchanged his own life on the cross so that we could be made righteous. That is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. And it's extended to anyone who would respond in faith to him. So I ask you this morning, church, to magnify his righteousness. Not in sinning more, not by living in sin, but by choosing to respond in faith and obedience to him this morning. Let's pray. Father God, 
we are well aware of the ways that we fail you. And we see that we have nothing good to claim for righteousness. You are our only hope. Without you, we ignore the truth. We fail to acknowledge you. We choose far lesser things. But we praise you this morning that your righteousness shines so clearly through the gospel of your son, Jesus, and that you impart that very righteousness to us through faith. So, Father, we ask you this morning that by your Spirit, we would choose to trust you. Give us the faith to recognize that blindness and our total dependence on you. In your Son's name, we ask these things. Amen.